We are continuing our journey through the book of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 7 today. We spent quite a while working through Christ's sermon in Luke 6. Today we're going to move on from his words to his actions. We uh, have been looking at this first sermon that Luke records for us. And now we're going to be moving into something that seems kind of familiar. Jesus has already done some similar things. And that should cause us to ask ourselves, why is this here? Whenever we're reading the scriptures, we want to be able to look at the big picture. What is God doing from beginning to end? What is the story so far? And what is the story that we see coming in the rest of the scriptures? How does this fit? Why is it included? And why is it included here? When we begin to see the big picture, then we can rightly narrow down what it is that God's telling us in a particular passage. It's really important for us to get this. Because you don't want to know what Zyger has to say. You want to know what God has to say. So if you don't have a Bible, then make sure that, that you put your hand up real quick. We'll get you a Bible. We want to make sure that you, that you have one. We've got plenty out here by the front door. And if you don't have one of your own, then take it with you. Because you need to have God's Word. If you need it just for today, you can borrow it and go forward. So if you need one, great. Just stick your hand up. We'll get you connected. Joe's back there to, to watch. Okay? So uh, if you do then you should be moving toward Luke chapter 7. That's where we're going to be. Now, as we look into this, I, I, I want to give you some brilliant illustration, but Luke already gives us the illustration, so I'm going to just look at this together. We get a story here that, that is unique in, the, in what it does, but it's also familiar. We saw in the very beginning of the book of Luke Let's pause just a moment and pray for whatever's going on with that siren. Father, uh, with so many on the road today and so many dangerous things uh, taking place, we don't really know what has happened, whether it's minor or major, but we know that um, when, there is, when there is that call, that uh, someone is in need. And so we lift them up to you. And Father, we also lift up to you those who don't run from the danger, but run to it. Those who are serving even in this moment. And we ask that you would bless them. We pray this in Christ's name. So uh, <clears throat> Jesus has already healed people, but today we're going to be looking at a story where he heals someone differently. We're going to be seeing the first account in the book of Luke of Jesus raising someone from the dead. These stories are big, and yet sometimes we take them for granted. We're so used to hearing these stories in church settings, we just kind of write it off as separate, but, but let your mind engage for just a moment. When you get sick, you go to the doctor, right? When you have a sickness that the doctor can't fix, you get very, very desperate. Imagine you're grieving the loss of your only child, your only son, at their funeral. Let your heart go there. Not just someone's funeral but someone that is like one heart with you your child perhaps your only child that's what we're seeing here in Luke chapter 7 so without further ado I'd like to read this uh, this passage for you it's in Luke 7 verses 1 through 17 uh, what I'd like for us to do is to stand today out of reverence for God's Word. 
just to, to show that we are going to respect God's word, we're just going to stand uh, like we might for the Pledge of Allegiance or the National Anthem, to stand up to show this regard for the word of God. And I will read it. You can follow along or you can just listen. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. Let me read that verse again. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. This is the word of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Shelly, just grab that water. Um, so as we're looking at the context of the story, let's, let's kind of back up and get a full picture. So Luke is writing his book here, his, his gospel. We call it the gospel, which means good news, uh, because each of these gospel writers, each of these evangelists, as we often refer to them, uh, thank you, is telling the story of God sending Jesus to save us. So this is sort of the culmination, uh, or the climax at, at this point of the story, is that God has been redeeming people. He's been restoring what was broken since Genesis 3. 
So we've been looking forward to the promise of the, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. That was Genesis 3.15. All the way back at the beginning of the book, God said, I'm going to send this one, this deliverer, the serpent crusher. And all through history, we've been waiting. We've been waiting. We've been waiting. Israel receives the word of God as the chosen people of God, and they're to be the light to the nations. Through Israel, those who have received the word will also receive the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the serpent crusher. So they've been looking forward to what God promised in Genesis 3 all the way through the, the whole 39 books of the Old Testament. Now we're talking about getting to, uh, to this place where Jesus comes on the earth, the serpent crusher has arrived. And Luke, in his gospel, is establishing a foundation for us through his friend Theophilus. He writes a letter to his friend and says, here, let me write this out. I've, I've put together an orderly account, having wrestled with all this myself. I'm a, a man of science. Doctor, uh, Luke is a doctor, a physician, uh, a little different uh, than what we would know today as a doctor, but someone who is looking at cause and effect, something that is provable, and he has wrestled with the teachings of the apostles, and he has gone back and done interviews with everybody that he could get a hold of, everybody that he could find. And Luke says, I'm writing this so that you will know the certainty of what you've been taught. He's establishing the truth of who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and what that means for us. So we see the, the birth account in Luke 2, and you've all heard that read on the peanut special at Christmas time as Linus gets up there, and I'll tell you what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That, that's Luke 2. And then we see in Luke 3, Jesus is, is actually called the Son of God by the Father God. Picture that for a moment. We don't hear God speak audibly very often. I've never heard God speak audibly in my life. In that scene, Jesus is being baptized. He's being identified with the way of God. And the heavens open up and God says, this is my beloved son. And people write it off. Ah, you know, that was thunder. That, yeah, because thunder enunciates well, right? And the Holy Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. If there was ever any question about who he was, it was settled right there. But Jesus continues, because you can know a father's child when the father looks, or when the child looks like the father, when the child acts like the father. When my kids get in trouble, their teachers would say, Oh, yeah, I can tell you're rich psychic's kids. Unfortunately, that happened too often. But the reality of it is when Jesus comes on the scene, he speaks the Father's words and he does the Father's will and people are able to recognize him. So in, in Luke 4, he faces the direct temptation of Satan and yet never once sins. My mind doesn't really take that in because I can't get through the day. But Jesus doesn't sin even one time. And he demonstrates, he proves that he is both God and man through his uh, through his genealogy that Luke, Luke lays out, through the fact that he faces this temptation and yet resists the temptation perfectly. He demonstrates as he goes along in the next several chapters, in, in 5 and, and even into 6, that Jesus has authority over everything. 
that he has the power to back up that authority. Only God can do what Jesus does. He heals sick people by just saying you're well. That people come into the synagogue while he's reading the word of God and preaching. They want to be healed. And he just says, open your, open your hand. And the guy with the crippled hand opens it up and he's healed. When Jesus shows up, demons start to freak out. So you have people who are being uh, tormented with a demonic possession, even in the synagogue. You have demons showing up even in church. But when Jesus shows up, they're freaking out. What are you doing here, Son of God? Are, are you trying to, to punish us before it's time? We know who you are. Jesus says, shut up, get out, and it's over. Authority. He speaks with authority, and he has the power to back it up. See, a lot of people can speak, but if you can't back it up, what good is it? It doesn't mean anything. So then in chapter 6, before the sermon that we just finished going through, Jesus is accused of something, and his response is claiming to be God. At the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus is going through the grain fields with his, uh, with his disciples. It's on a Sabbath day, and the disciples start you know, picking some grain heads off and you know, rubbing them in their fingers, popping them in their mouth, and, and the religious leaders are they're, they're tripping. They're like, what are you doing? You're working on the Sabbath because they're really focused on the law. To their credit, what they want is for people to honor God and not take the law lightly. That is to their credit. However, they're missing the point of the law and they're getting bogged down in the legal details rather than the heart that is supposed to drive it. And Jesus says, listen, uh, let me point you back to the Old Testament. Let's go back to when David was on the run and he didn't have anything for him and his men to eat. And he actually takes the sacred consecrated bread from uh, the tabernacle that was only lawful for the priests to eat. And yet he does it and it's not called sin. So the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But Jesus here in Luke goes even farther and he says, the son of man, his primary way of referring to himself, is Lord of the Sabbath is the master, the ruler, the king, the sovereign over the Sabbath itself. And in case you missed the significance of that, the Sabbath was established by God before the law. When he created the world, he set aside the seventh day, and he says, okay, this I've done all this work in six days, seventh day is rested, set it aside, keep it holy to remind you of me. Only God is Lord over the Sabbath. Jesus says, I'm Lord over the Sabbath. Anybody ever tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God, they have not read the scriptures or they haven't paid attention. He absolutely claimed to be God. So either he is or he's a liar or he's a nutcase. I'm not following a nutcase, not following a liar, but I'm giving my life to this one who is Lord. So Jesus establishes all of this. He preaches his content here in in Luke 6, talking about the character, the conduct of those who would follow him, those who want to be uh, sons of God. If you want to be sons of God, you want to look like sons of God, then act like daddy. Be merciful because your father is merciful. 
Forgive those who don't deserve forgiveness. Love those who hate you. The ones who treat you badly, the ones who mistreat your family, the ones who spread lies about you, the ones who falsely accuse you, the ones who steal from you, those who abuse you physically, verbally, psychologically, love them. Forgive them. And that's when you look like your father. That's hard to swallow. It's hard for us to deal with sometimes. And he goes through this content, and we end up at this place. We end up at this place where Jesus demonstrates, not with words, with actions, what the heart of God is really like. All of that to get us to the beginning. So here we are at the beginning. Our core reality for today is, is pretty simple. But it might be something that you can miss if you're, not, if you're not looking at this rightly. The core reality is this. Jesus brings good news not to the deserving, but to the humble and broken. Jesus brings good news not to the deserving, but to the humble and broken. Say it with me. Jesus brings good news not to the deserving, but to the humble and broken. As we see the story, it unfolds with Jesus after having said all these things in the hearing of the people. He had the church service, right? Then he goes into Capernaum. That's what we should do, by the way, when we get done with church services, is not just keep this stuff hidden away, not just keep hanging out together singing songs, but go into your community, go into your regular life, and take this with you. Take the truth with you. Jesus does that here. When he gets to Capernaum, which ends up kind of being his base of operations, he gets word of this sick man who's about to die. This isn't like, you know, a little cold, you know, he's not feeling well, he's got a flu bug. This is a man who's on the brink of death and receives word from these Jewish elders who are coming on behalf of a Roman centurion. I want to let that sink in for just a moment. It's the centurion's servant. Now the Romans at that time, now we tend to think through our our current 2018 lens, and you think of Rome, and you think of the Vatican and the Catholic Church. So Rome might be associated in your mind with Christianity. Not so. Rome, during the time of the empire, was a pagan place. And a Roman centurion would just not come to some Jewish rabbi. These, you know, these people are insignificant to me. I'm a Roman, right? I'm an important guy. And not just anybody. This is a commander of many. You might recognize the word century in there. He's a commander of, of a group of a unit of a hundred. He's in this, and there's variation to that, but in that, in that command, he's not some underling. He's an important guy. He's got servants. He commands many people, and he tells them what to do, and they do it. It's pretty easy to get full of yourself. In fact, that quality, that sort of, we might say, arrogance, or maybe swagger, that was promoted among the Romans. That humility was frowned upon. Humility is not an appropriate characteristic for a successful leader. Sometimes we think that today. But this Roman centurion has heard about Jesus. Everybody has. He's the hot commodity, right? He's the, he's the preacher everybody's talking about. 
and you go around healing people and people are going to talk. The Roman centurion hears about Jesus and he sends, interestingly, leaders among the Jews, Jewish elders. So he's connected, he's Roman, he's a, a part of this, but he's connected with the Jews. Perhaps he was uh, you know, part of Herod's guard. I'm not really sure, but there's a connection here. He knows these Jewish leaders. He has a, a particular relationship with them, which they'll refer to in a moment. And this centurion says, my, my servant whom I love, is very dear to me, is going to die if I don't do something. I'm going to get this Galilean preacher. You know what? I'm... I'm an outsider, I'm a Gentile, and I understand your people aren't too keen on that. So let me send you, if you love me, if you respect me, please go find Jesus. Please tell him about my servant. See if he'll come and heal him. So they go. And these Jewish elders who have been raised with the Scriptures, they've been raised with an understanding of God. These are the people assigned to tell the entire world about who God is. Abraham said that his, his people, Israel, would be a light to the nations. Just like the church today should. They go to Jesus, and notice what they say to him. When they came to Jesus in verse 4, they pleaded earnestly with him, so they're, they're very sincere about wanting to get Jesus to come. There's an earnest pleading with him. They say, Jesus, this man deserves to have you do this. If anybody ever deserved to have you give them this miraculous thing to save their loved one, this guy does. Because even though he's a Gentile, even though he's a Roman, he loves our nation. The people of God, the special chosen nation of God, this Roman, this pagan recognizes truth here and he loves our nation so much so that he's been a part of building the synagogue now in all likelihood that means financially and through the protection of his troops not that he's swinging a hammer but who knows he's involved in some sense in investing himself in the building of their synagogue to worship the one true living god so jesus went with them as they pleaded with him and notice what happens next. Here's where we get a surprise in the story. He gets there, and before he even gets to the house, he's near, but before he even gets to the house, this Roman centurion sent friends. I, I put that in parentheses in, in my Bible because I want to make sure that I know. He didn't send servants. He sent friends, peers. He sent friends to say to Jesus, Lord, don't, don't trouble yourself by coming to my house. I do not deserve to even have you present in my house to come under my roof. Now this is important, this next verse, the next thing that he said. When I first read the story, I'm like, man, the centurion sent these guys to go get Jesus and <laughs> he didn't even care enough to go get him himself? No, that's not why. Verse 7, that's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. I don't deserve to have you under my roof. I don't deserve to come and speak to you in person. I'm a Gentile. 
Your people consider me a dog because I'm outside of, of the faith primarily. They, they would have thought in ethnic terms at this point, but that wasn't ever what God intended. But I'm an outsider to your people. I don't deserve to come and talk to you. Lord, I'm unworthy. But if you'll just say the word, you don't have to come to my house, Jesus. Just, just say the word. And my servant will be healed. How do I know this? How, can I, how do I think in terms like this? He clarifies, for I myself am a man under authority. I'm a high-ranking official, but I'm under somebody else's authority, and that person is under somebody else's authority, and eventually somebody's under the Caesar's authority. But I'm under authority, and I have people under me. I get how this works. And I tell my people, go, and they go, and I tell them, come, and they come. Whatever it is that I say, that's what happens because of my authority. He recognizes something that the others don't. He recognizes what we've been talking about in previous chapters, that Jesus has authority over both the physical and spiritual realms. Even though he didn't grow up with the scriptures, he recognizes the Messiah, the Christ, is God in the flesh and is able to speak with authority even to sickness, to command the physical realm to do what he says and it will. We'll see that as a recurring theme throughout the rest of the book as we have so far. But that's not the point of the story. It's important to note that this Gentile recognizes it. But we've already seen the authority of Jesus. Luke doesn't need to establish that for us. He's done it. So why is it here? He continues. I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, he goes. That one, come, he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Now, why would Jesus be amazed at him? He didn't say anything that Jesus doesn't already know. Jesus knows his authority, right? He knows he doesn't even have to come to his house. But a Gentile gets what the elders of Israel did not. You remember what they said to him when they came? Jesus, please come. He deserves it. He deserves for you to come and give this to him. He's earned it, Jesus. He's done things for your people. Therefore, he's done things for God. And because he's done things for God, for you, you owe him. This has got to get a little itchy and scratchy thinking about this, saying those words, God, you owe me something. I can't even imagine saying that to my parents. You gave me life. You don't owe me anything. To God? Jesus. Come save them because he deserves it. And the Gentile humbles himself. Now don't misunderstand. He doesn't think of himself as a mouse or a doormat. He's a Roman commander. He is never a mouse. He is never a doormat. It's not that he thinks less of himself, but he reckons himself rightly in the reality that is authority. Humility is rooted in that. It's not Thinking, oh, I'm such a terrible person. That's not the humble part. It's recognizing what's true. When I think more of myself than I merit, than I lack humility, I become proud, boastful, arrogant. 
But when I recognize who I really am, I can assert myself within that, but recognize, as he does here, I may have authority over men, but this one is the king, the commander of the universe. He has authority over everything, and I dare not speak to him. That is what is known in the Old Testament in particular as the fear of God. Not being afraid of God, that you know, that there's an element of that somewhere in there. It's not a matter of, oh, God's terrible and mean and you know, not that kind of fear. But recognizing he's the king of the universe. I have no place to stand apart from him allowing it. So we come humbly, reckoning ourselves rightly. And as he works through this, Jesus is amazed, not by what he says, but by the fact that he says it instead of Israel. I haven't found this kind of faith in all Israel. The faith that says, I don't have to see you do it, I know you can. The faith that says, I don't need you to come and put your hands on my servant, just speak the word. The faith that says you are who you say you are, you are God, and you can command the physical, the spiritual, everything, anywhere in the universe, and by your command it happens. That's faith. It's getting our minds wrapped around reality. And Israel, the people of God, have been missing it. This Gentile gets it. But the story continues. It doesn't stop there. This, these two stories are like two scenes in one story. All right, so we have the scene of Jesus healing the centurion's servant, but it continues. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. You think the crowds are following him? I can speak, just, I'm not even there. I can just say, healed, done. We just have a conversation. And the servants go back, and he's already healed. Probably, probably, because I know this is how it would happen today, somebody in the, in the community would write that off as, well, he just got lucky. Jesus happened to be there. He just happened to get sick on his own. It's coincidence or coinkydink, as Alan Thicke would say. Three of you know who Alan Thicke is. As Jesus is going, his disciples, those who are following him, and a large crowd of people, who are picking up on all of the excitement are following him. As you approach the town gate, a dead person is being carried out. Now, if you're of Irish descent, maybe you can relate to this a little better. In these uh, death processionals following a funeral, they would have sort of a parade of mourning. And uh, this was uh, prominent in, in Ireland, I don't know if they still do it today, but it was a prominent part of their history, where you would carry the dead person through the streets and the people would come and they would mourn along with it. And so um, that's happening here. So we, they have this, this open coffin-type bier that they carry him on. And Jesus sees this scene. He sees what's happening. They're carrying a dead guy. But it's not just a dead guy. This widow's son, he's somebody's love. Now, it doesn't tell us whether this is a, a grown man who has died or a child who has died. We just know it's her son. I think it's significant that we're not told one way or another. I think it's significant 
Because it's not a matter of, boy, what a tragedy that a young child died. It's the heart of God compassionate toward those who are hurting, who are broken. And it doesn't matter if your child is 6 or 16 or 60. When you bury your child, your heart is ripped out. Some of you in this room know what that feels like. Many more will one day. And notice what happens next. He approaches the town gate. A dead person is being carried out. The only son of his mother, she's a widow. A large crowd from the town was with her. This is the mourners that are there. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Now, this, listen, this is a very discompassionate thing to say to someone. Just, just try to stop their tears when their heart is broken. So when Jesus says, don't cry, you might want to note that. His heart went out to her, and he's not throwing platitudes to say, oh, poor woman, it'll get better. He's saying don't cry, because something amazing is about to happen. There's a greater reality than what you're seeing in this moment. And he goes up, and he touches the coffin, and those carrying it stood still, because they're shocked, right? You don't come up and put your hand on the coffin, but also because Jesus is there. It's not just somebody putting their hand on the coffin. That might be seen as disrespectful. But Jesus is known throughout the region now, speaking the word of God, living out the word of God, doing amazing and miraculous things. And when that guy puts his hand on the coffin, everything stops. And then the man in the coffin, or the person in the coffin, Laying there, dead, not one bit of life in them. And this commander of the universe who heals someone he's not even present with by his word says, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sitting up in this coffin. You think that might be a shocking funeral? Sits up and begins to talk. And notice that Jesus isn't just doing this. There's a, there's a great crowd of people, and when Jesus does miraculous things, the point is always to bring glory to the Father. That's always why he does miraculous things. He could do more, right? He doesn't heal everyone. But he does them for a point to bring glory to the Father. And in this particular instance, notice he's not doing this so that people will talk. People do and people will and they're in awe and they praise God. And that is a huge point. But notice what happens when this young man sits up and begins to talk. Jesus gave him back to his mother. It's the only time we see this doesn't raise every dead person. Not everyone's hurt goes away with the miracle. Just That's not how it works. But Jesus, seeing her pain, his heart goes out to her, and he performs this act, and then he gives the son back to the mother. 
because the point here is God's heart for the brokenhearted. Jesus brings good news not to the deserving, but to the humble and broken. He was good news to the Gentile centurion because he was humble enough to realize he was hurting over the sickness his servant had. And he's good news to this widow. Notice she's not even looking for it, right? She doesn't send anybody to get Jesus. He just sees it and does it without being asked. She's broken, and he is her good news. Verse 16, they were all filled with awe, you think? Praise God. This is the point. It's always about praising God. Hopefully we get that. Hopefully we get that as individuals. Hopefully we get that as a church. Man, if people are praising you about the good things that you do, then goody for you. You've gotten all the praise you're going to get. When you do it without anybody else's accolades, that's when God is going to praise you. I'd rather have his praise. When we as a church do things, it cannot be for the glory of this church, but for the glory of God's church, for the glory of Him. Whatever we do, the purpose is for the praise of our Father. And they said this, a great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help His people. Brother, they had no idea. He's just getting started. By the end of this book, we'll see how he truly helps the people. And it's not the way we expect. It's not the way they expect. We get to see the end of the story because it's in our past. It's yet in their future. But he helps the people by removing the stain of sin from us. By paying the price himself. He doesn't have any sin. So he's able to absorb ours and die on a cross in our place. What you might miss is that that is precisely the point of this story. Now, I've done a lot of context. I've done a lot of talking through this. So we're going to move quickly through some of these uh, points to fill in in your program. As we're rolling through this, hopefully you've already picked these things up. The point of this story is the gospel itself. This is a picture in these two scenes of exactly what God has been calling people to through the Old Testament up until now. Paul will clarify it in the book of Romans really well. And the rest of the New Testament will be developing the concepts behind it for those who are already in Christ. But what we see is that Jesus brings good news not to the deserving, but to the humble and the broken. Notice this. Performance-based religion misses the point. Performance-based religion misses the point. The elders I can learn to understand you much better. I want to reiterate, I have still never heard the voice of God audibly. I believe that's the voice of Cortana. But. So, where were we? Performance-based religion misses the point. The leaders among the Jews that... The centurion sends, now notice, there's a difference here in some way, and we're not told what it is, 
But what seems to be clear is that these are not the same Jewish leaders that are following around Jesus trying to accuse him. They don't seem to have this trap mentality that we've seen from the Pharisees and other religious leaders. But there are elders among the Jews that he sends to Jesus. These are people who, at least in theory, know God or should. But they've turned it into a performance-based religion. Jesus, do this because he's earned it. Jesus goes because of their earnest pleading, but he doesn't do what they say because he deserves it. Just the opposite. Performance-based religion misses the point. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. You can go ahead and turn there. We want to see it. If you're in Luke, turn to the right. Somewhere right about in the middle of what's left of your New Testament. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. This is written by a Jewish leader. A Pharisee, actually. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus after Christ has died and been raised from the dead and returned to the Father in heaven. Performance-based religion misses the point. Notice in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. It's not because of our righteousness. It's not because we deserve it according to his mercy. Performance-based religion misses the point. Notice this also. Both humility and faith are rooted in reality. Both humility and faith are rooted in reality. Now, we've turned these into things that are much more like emotions. With faith, we turn it into some mystical thing that some people have this super spiritual dynamic and others don't. But really... What faith is, is simply aligning our thoughts with reality as it is. And what humility is, is very much the same thing. Take a look at Romans 12, 2. Okay, so if you're in Ephesians, back up to the left a little bit. A couple of books there. Romans 12. Four or five of you are saying already, I knew it was going to go here because we go to Romans 12 a lot. I said 12.2, I meant 12.3 is what I really meant. I get excited about 12.1 and 2, so it just naturally comes out when I type it. Uh, but it's Romans 12.3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Paul is, again, Paul, and he's not calling us to think less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less. He's not calling us to think, oh, I'm just a worthless dirtbag, you know, I'm no good for anything, poor me, I have no talents, I have no ability. That's not humility at all. That is actually a a negative side of pride, because I think it's about me. It's not about me. If I'm going to have true humility, I need to think of myself with sober judgment. If Michael Jordan says, oh, I'm not a very good basketball player, 
That's not humility. That's stupid. It's a lie, right? For all of us, humility means I need to see what the truth is. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. But notice he doesn't say debase yourself either. Reckon yourself rightly. Think of yourself with sober judgment according to the measure of grace and faith that God has given to you. That's what the centurion does. He doesn't say, I'm not worth much. I command people. That's why I get it. But this commander is higher. That's humility. It's rooted in reality. Turn to 11. Uh, 11 I'm going to get this out of my mouth. Hebrews 11.1. 1. So you're going to move toward the back of your Bible to the right of where you are now. And in the book of Hebrews, we don't know who actually wrote it. It's uh, one of the only books that we don't really know who wrote. Some say it was Paul. Some say it was Apollos. I don't know. But what I do know is that it was written to the tribes of Israel to connect the dots between the Old Testament and the New, to be able to see here's the law, here's the Old Covenant, and here's how Jesus fulfills that. And in Hebrews 11.1, 1, the very first verse of this chapter that is often called the Faith Hall of Fame or the Hall of Faith, we get a definition of what faith is. See if this doesn't remind you of what I just said. That faith is a matter of aligning our thoughts with reality. Here's what it says. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Simple, but very, very powerful. It means I know what I know even if I don't see what I know. I know that God is in control even when it looks like everything is out of control. I know that God is good even when I see pain and evil. And I don't understand it and I don't put it together myself because my mind is limited, but I trust that God knows what he's doing. That's faith. It's recognizing that there is a reality that is greater than my ability to comprehend that reality. That's what happens with this centurion. I recognize your authority. So because I recognize your authority, I trust that you don't even have to come and be in the house. It's not about some formula. It's not about the, the process of healing. It's about the fact that you command everything. Every atom in the universe is at your command. So if you say, be healed, he's healed. You know what's interesting about the text? Jesus does We don't even have it recorded that Jesus says it. It's not like Jesus had to speak some word when he thinks the word. I mean, that's, that's power. Both humility and faith are rooted in reality. The second scene of our story today, and I would encourage you to memorize this verse that we're going to look at, shows us that the heart of God is compassionate. The heart of God is compassionate. Jesus perfectly uh, reveals for us the heart of God. And when Jesus sees this widow weeping and broken, his heart goes out to her. Turn to the middle of your Bible and find the book of Psalms, Psalms 30, Psalm 34. I'm going to encourage you to memorize this verse, to commit it deep into your heart, into your memory. Psalm 
This verse is at the very center, the very heart of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. This verse dovetails so perfectly with John 3.16 that you should probably read them together. John 3.16, I think most of us are familiar with, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's why. Psalm 34.18 The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The heart of God is compassionate. Jesus brings good news, not to the deserving, but to the humble and the broken. Now notice this next part. Yeah, Psalm 34. But we're going to be turning to the book of Romans in just a moment. Notice this last thing we want to see. God's grace is not contingent upon our seeking. God's grace is not contingent upon our seeking. Now that seems like a weird thing for me to say. I thought we have to ask Him into our hearts. I thought we're supposed to seek after the Lord, to seek Him and we'll find Him. And there's truth in that. But notice, it's bigger. Jesus, when He heals this, when He raises this young man from the dead, when He restores him to his mother, He doesn't do it because she asked for it. In her pain, in her suffering, She's, I'm sure she's heard of Jesus too, just like the centurion and everybody else in Judea. But she doesn't even care. She's broken. She can't think about, hey, you know, maybe I can get Jesus to come do a miracle. All she can think about is, I'm hurting, I'm hurting, I'm hurting, and I don't think I can ever be healed. Something has been ripped from me and it can never be restored. And Jesus in his sovereignty as God, comes to a woman who isn't even seeking him. He brings life and hope. Turn to Romans chapter 9. By the way, for those of you who have been in church world for a long time, I'm sorry. Sorry for you if you've been caught up in theological debates that have hurt your ability to see the scriptures for what they are. That's true for a lot of us. We need to overcome our framework to see what God is saying in the text. Whenever you see verses in scripture about God's election, God's sovereign choice, as the NIV gives it in the heading, predestination and things like that, we have twisted those things around into silly theological debates and arguments over what is God's role and our role. And ultimately, we can only operate on our side of the curtain, right? God does what God does because He's God. And it doesn't matter whether He chooses me or I choose Him on my side of the curtain because I still have to choose Him. And if I choose Him because He chose me, so be it. I still have to make the choice. So let's not get caught up in silly theological debates. God includes these truths for our comfort so that we can know that when we are broken, whether we are seeking Him or not, God can still give us life and hope. Now we'll have to respond to that. But notice what he says here. This whole chapter is about God's sovereign choice of Israel primarily, but he's also speaking of the church. 
Notice, um, let's take a look at, um, starting with verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Jump ahead to verse 19. Uh, I'm sorry, jump ahead to verse 21. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some potters for noble purposes and some for common use? God does what God does. Because he's God. He says to Job, when Job cries out, Job the righteous man, God has just defended him to his friends. And Job has been saying, if God would just show up, you'd all see, you'd know I didn't do anything wrong. God will clear this up. When God shows up, we'll get this straightened out. And everybody will understand. And God shows up and he says, shut up and sit down. I'm God. Who are you? God loves Job. He says, Job, since you know everything, why don't you explain to me how much snow is going to fall next winter? Where does it come from? How does all this work? You were there when I made it all, right? God doesn't explain to us. That's the point that he's making here. He doesn't have to. If he does, it's because he chooses to. Let's jump ahead. Um, boy, I want to read more of it, but let's take a look at verse 25. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Speaking of reaching out to the Gentiles, to those who are not seeking him rather than to Israel. And he says also in verse 26, it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his, his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It's just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like, like Gomorrah. Here's our point. What then shall we say that the Gentiles, non-Jews, those outside of Israel, us, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone <clears throat> that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Jesus is that stumbling stone. Jesus demonstrates in this story exactly what God wants us to see in the gospel. You don't get saved because you deserve it. God doesn't give you grace because you earned it. It wouldn't be grace. That would be wages. Romans 6.23 tells us what wages we've earned, and we've all earned them. The wages of sin is death. Congratulations, here's your check. If you want to earn something, that's the only thing you deserve because you have sin. All of us do. And if you have sin, your payment is death. You want life, you have to hope in something that you don't deserve. 
grace. Just by grace you're saved. Through faith, being sure of what you don't see right now. And even that faith is from God. It's not your works. It's not what you deserve. Jesus brings good news not to the deserving, but to the humble and the broken. Why does it matter? The heart of God is perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. God's good news is only for the humble and broken. You cannot, mark this well now, you cannot come to God and get grace without blood, without tears. I'm not talking about an emotional rush and you get saved and all of a sudden everything is great and life's a bowl of cherries. That's, we've been sold that sometimes. That's not it. But if I don't come on my knees, I cannot come. I have to recognize that I don't deserve it. And the sooner I recognize that I don't deserve it and I cry out in brokenness over the fact that I am doomed and destined for hell because that's what I have deserved. The sooner I get to that place, the sooner I can open my hands and receive the grace that he's always wanted to pour out on me. If you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ right now, if you don't know with absolute certainty, not you think so, not, well, maybe God knows I'm doing my best and my, I'm trying to, to you know, have more good deeds than bad deeds, that's a lie, that's garbage, and it will take you straight to hell. If that's what you're counting on, I need to tell you this right now, your destiny is hell and eternal separation from God. If you're relying on going to church and being religious and doing good things and not messing up too bad, you're going to hell. The only way not to is to be humble and broken. Why does it matter? It's the only thing that does. You can clean up your life, great, super. Still go to hell. Because you can't get that clean. The stain is too deep. Not before a holy God. You, could, you might be able to clean up better than me. You might be able to fool the people around you. But you can't fool God. He sees the heart. Nothing escapes him. Be sure your sins will find you out. If you're not in that relationship, you can be right now. The same way this centurion did. Lord, I don't deserve it. But if you say I can be your child, I'm your child. If you say I can be changed from inside, then I am changed. And nothing can stop that. You alone have the authority to make that call. And if your word tells me that by faith, by trusting in you, I can receive you and be your child forever, then I'm going to hang my whole life on that. It's as simple as surrendering. Not doing stuff to earn it, but having received what you didn't earn, living your whole life out of gratitude. What difference does it make in my daily walk? Scripture tells us that the just shall live by faith. Romans 1.17 says that's the gospel. Not religion that makes you behave well, so that you build synagogues and churches and well, God's going to take care of me because I took care of God. I have people say that to me every week. <laughs> every week. You know, I've I got to treat the pastor good because i got to get in good with God. Sorry, you're going to hell. I don't usually say that because that's rude, but, you know, but that's the truth. 
if I really wanted to be caring, I wouldn't worry about being rude. Because the truth is, if that's your perspective, you have no part of him. You can't get to God through me. Are you kidding? Do you know me? If you don't know Jesus, come to Jesus now. Don't wait. You don't know what's waiting for you outside. You could walk out this door and get hit by a thousand bikers. You know, it's just the reality of it is we don't know the next moment. Forgive me for, for making light of that and joking because I don't want to make light of this, this moment, this truth. Death happens for all of us. You don't know when. Don't wait. Don't bet on I'm going to get time at the end you may not we're connected here with a man who at 35 or whatever 30 some years old falls hits his head and he's dead bam no time to repent no time to change if you're hearing my words right now God's calling you and if you're already in that relationship you know people that you care about who need to hear that yeah it'll be hard Suck it up. Because if you don't do the hard thing, the people you care about will be in hell for eternity. If you don't tell them, how can you say you love them? Time for me to be done. i got a lot more I'd love to say. But the fact of the matter is, we need Jesus. And when we see this story, the story is here not to reestablish once again that he is God, it does affirm that for sure. It's to tell us that he loves us so much, that he wants to save us, not because you deserve it, but because he wants to. If you'll just let him, just receive him. Give up control. You're not doing a good job anyway. And let him take over. you do that, if you're humble and broken, then Jesus will be your good news. Let's pray.